You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read the first part of the chapter, then the last part of the chapter, focusing primarily on the family as it goes down to Moab and then on Naomi who returns. Uh, not, uh, we're not going to read the middle portion, which uh, is primarily about Ruth. So Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 6, then over to verse 18. Let's give our attention to the reading of the Word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that she, talking about Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, your word gives light. We pray that you would enlighten our minds to understand it. Thank you that your word gives life, and we pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us, give life to us if that is needed. Help us, O Lord. We pray that you would fulfill your purposes today in our lives, the lives of your people, through the preaching of your word. We thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's difficult to change directions. Isn't that what the law of inertia states? If a body is moving in a straight line at a constant speed, it will continue to move in a straight line at a constant speed until it is acted upon by some kind of force. I think there's a spiritual principle here. It's easy for our spiritual lives to move in a direction sometimes that may not be the best for us. 
And if we don't see the danger signs, we may continue to move in that direction unless we are acted upon by a force, probably God Himself, directly or indirectly. Our spiritual lives do not always move in a, in a direction toward God. We, we must be intentional about our relationship with God because naturally we tend to move away from God. Left to our own devices, we move away from God. And it's possible for a Christian to find themselves in a spiritual mess. We're like that frog in a beaker of water at room temperature where slowly the water is heated until it's too hot for the frog to survive. Yet during the whole process, he never jumps out of the water. The change is so slow, he does not realize what is happening until it's too late. That kind of slow, subtle change can take place in our lives, leading to actions that may not be honoring to God. It doesn't take a lot to drift away from the Lord. It doesn't take a lot to find yourself in a situation wondering, how in the world did I get in this mess? We see this very pattern in the family of Elimelech in Ruth chapter 1. They made a bad decision as a family. On the surface, it may look like a wise decision, but we are going to see spiritually it is a bad decision. It raises the question, how do you keep from making bad spiritual decisions? But I think even more to the point of this particular passage, what do you do when the decision you've made ends up in a mess? One thing this passage teaches us is that we can always, always turn back to God. And the reason we can always turn back to God is because He is sovereignly at work in our lives in every situation. Sovereignly at work in our lives in every situation. And He is at work to bring us back to Him, to bring us to repentance. So how does this happen? How does God work to bring us to repentance? We're really going to see two things this morning. The first thing, amazingly enough, God sovereignly works through our disobedience to show us our need of repentance. That's the first five verses of this chapter. As you read through verses 1 through 5, a major question confronts us. Was it wrong for this family to leave Judah and move to Moab. Was it wrong? The text does not answer this question directly. No comment explicitly is made on this move to Moab. But there are very strong hints in this passage that this family is spiritually moving in the wrong direction. This can happen easily happen to us, and so we want to take a look for a few minutes here on disobedience. We see, I think, going on in this particular situation in family, we see the pressure of disobedience because of the context in which they lived. We see in verse 1 when this story took place, the story of Ruth and Naomi 
in the days when the judges ruled. Now, when you hear that, what is your thought, positive or negative? The days of the judges. Well, we just read a chapter out of Judges. It's not really that positive. And you're going to get a lot of judges over the next several weeks. And you're going to see what's going on in the book of Judges. It's not a good period in Israel's history. You remember one of the major themes of the book of Judges comes from the end of the book, chapter 21, verse 25. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And part of the reason was they did not have a king. But everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone around you, when everyone around you is doing their own thing, it's easy for you to want to do the same. We're influenced by those around us. We're influenced by our culture. And people today are more willing to accept as normal what used to be considered deviant behavior. The general acceptance by society of certain behaviors affects the way people think about those behaviors. And even more, perhaps we feel the pressure from the culture around us to accept those behaviors ourselves. And so we constantly must evaluate everything we see and hear by the truth of Scripture. The pressure of disobedience when everybody else is doing what is right in their own eyes. Why not follow suit? And if everyone else is doing what is right in their own eyes, even maybe some of the the wrong things we do don't seem so bad, do they? The pressure of disobedience. We also see here the nature of disobedience in the the, uh, tremendous ironies that occur in this passage. There are several ironies. I want to highlight two ironies in this particular text. The husband of Naomi is named Elimelech. Do you know what Elimelech means? My God is king. Well, this person named my God is king does not act like my God is king because he leaves the land of the king. Why does he leave the land of the king? Well, they leave Bethlehem to find bread, food, and Moab. Do you know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. They leave the house of bread to find bread, to find food in a strange land. I think these ironies highlight that they are not acting in ways that are consistent to what they believe. They are acting in ways that are really contrary to what they believe. They're not really living out their faith. They're not practicing what they profess. The pressure of disobedience, the nature of disobedience. We also see here, I think, the dangers of disobedience. Why is moving away from the land of Judah so significant? What's the danger of moving? People move all the time today. We don't think anything of it. Well, you have, you have to ask the question, what did the land mean to an Israelite? The land was real, really not owned by the Israelites. It was owned by God, but it was given to the Israelites as their inheritance. It was to provide sustenance, a way to support yourself and your family, and that was your inheritance, which you would pass on from generation to generation to generation. 
given to you by God. The land was home. Not just physically was it home, but it was your spiritual home. To be away from the land was to be away from home. To be away from the land was to be away from God's people. To be away from the land was to be away from God because it was there that he placed the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of his presence. And then later, it's going to be Jerusalem. They abandoned their spiritual foundation. And this is a danger because it's easy to make decisions about life situations without considering the spiritual ramifications of those decisions. How will this decision affect my spiritual life? How will this decision affect the spiritual life of my family? We must ask those questions. We must begin to look at the world through the eyes of God rather than through our own eyes. We can easily move away from the Lord, get comfortable. In a situation that's not pleasing to God. Like the frog in the water who does not realize the water is changing around him. And pretty soon, it's going to take his life. His family settles down in a foreign land. And I think what maybe was meant to be a temporary situation turned into something more permanent. They remained there. And I think it was about 10 years they were there. Perhaps we see here the rationalization of disobedience. Family makes a move because of a famine. On one level, it's easy to, to rationalize or, or give good decisions about, about this move. A, a man must provide for his family. He must go where where the food is, where the jobs are. You want to go where where you can support your family? And the famine gives this family cover, if you will, to make a bad decision. But in reality, the famine should have given them pause. Because famines mean something when you are living in God's land. You go back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which lays out for God's people as a part of the Mosaic Covenant. If you will honor God and live according to God's law, he will pour out abundant blessings on you. But if you do not honor God and you disobey him, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 lays out these curses, judgments that will come upon the people. And although famine is not specifically mentioned, listen to what is mentioned As covenant curse. Cursed will be your basket and kneading bowl. Verse 17 of 28, chapter 28. Verse 23 mentions no rain. Verse 38, locusts will, locusts, I'm sorry, not locusts, locusts will consume your harvest. Verses 39 through 40, your vineyards and olive trees will not produce. There is a famine. What should they have done? Repent. Seek the Lord. Grab others. As a nation, we need to repent. But instead, 
You can imagine them rationalizing their behavior. Let's go to Moab. We hear there's food in Moab. Rationalization can be part of disobedience. Rationalization can make ourselves feel better about decisions we've made. Some decisions may make sense from a human standpoint, but they may not be good decisions spiritually. And so they get comfortable in Moab, comfortable enough to allow their sons to marry Moabite women. Unlike Abraham, remember what Abraham did to find a son, I'm sorry, a wife for his son? He sent back to the home country so that Isaac would not marry a Canaanite woman. They don't send their sons back to Judah, do they? They married Moabite women. The problem is that such women were not believers in Yahweh. Typically, they would worship the god Chemosh. And this is never a racial issue. This is always an issue, which god do you worship? Do you worship the god of Israel? And the nations surrounding Israel all worshipped other gods. And these two Moabite women would have been brought up worshipping the God of Chemosh. And so they settle down. They become comfortable there in Moab, away from the presence of the Lord. We can become comfortable with disobedience. I ran across a list of uh, someone put together a list of evidence of spiritual apathy, spiritual indifference. Some of the things on that list were Uh, were this, prayer ceases to be a vital part of your life. You have few serious thoughts about eternal things. You become uncomfortable with pointed spiritual discussion. The slightest excuse can keep you from worship. No music in your soul, no song in your heart, spiritual music, uh, a spiritual song. And you easily adjust to the world's lifestyle. Being a true believer while moving spiritually in the wrong direction, is a miserable place to be. But God is still at work. And so the second thing we want to see in this particular text is that God sovereignly works through repentance to bring us back to Him. He sovereignly works through repentance to bring us back to Him. There are consequences to disobedience. Many times our disobedience brings hardship or difficulty. It's a way that God pursues us to bring us back to Him. And repentance many, many times comes in the face of hardship and difficulty. Now, not every hardship we face is a sign that we have done, we have committed some kind of sin. You don't want to make that one-to-one connection all the time. But certainly through these hardships in Ruth chapter 1, God is pursuing Naomi. We see the hardship of death. Verses 3 and 5. Elimelech, husband of Naomi, dies. They still stay in Moab. The, the two sons marry Moabite women and then they die. Naomi loses a husband and two sons. She's she's left a widow in a foreign land with no means of support. 
very vulnerable situation, very difficult situation. There is no safety net. And so, what does she do? Verse 6. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. She arose to return to head back home. In the difficulties of life, we see our inability to control our lives and we throw ourselves on the mercy of our sovereign God. You know, where else does Naomi really have to turn? Where else is she going to go? But back to the place of the blessing of God. That the blessing of God may once again abundantly be poured out on her life. So she returns. It's a major theme of this chapter. The word for return occurs 12 times in chapter 1. It's the basic word for repentance in the Old Testament. And so Naomi moves away from the source of her pain. She moves away from that toward God. She moves away from her disobedience and the disobedience of her family. And she moves back toward the land of God. I think she is a good picture of repentance. Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, question 87, what is repentance unto life? Here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Naomi's life exemplifies this. Repentance is a saving grace. That's what that answer says. Because God is the one who pursued Naomi to show her the consequences of her sin to bring her back to him. Naomi is in a foreign land away from the place of God's special presence. And while there, she apprehends the mercy of God who visited his people with food. That's verse 6. And having apprehended the mercy of God, what does she do? She turns from her sin, from that place where she has come, and she turns back to God. She begins moving now back to Judah, back to her spiritual home. In verses 20 through 21, she publicly confesses grief over the results of her sin because I think she recognizes the true nature of her sin. When she returns to Bethlehem, verse 19 says, the whole town was stirred because of them, Naomi and Ruth. The idea is the whole town was shouting with joy. You can imagine the woman engaging in happy, animated conversations. Is this really Naomi? We haven't seen you for over 10 years. Well, maybe Naomi puts a little bit of a damper on their uh, joy by reminding them of her serious situation. Verse 20, she says to them, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. That's, that's the... 
meaning of the name Naomi, pleasant, but her, but her situation is not pleasant. Don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She uses a wordplay. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You, you could highlight that wordplay. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has marred me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I think Naomi is expressing here the hardship that she's experienced. Ten years ago, I left Bethlehem full, husband and two sons, and now I'm returning empty. Of course, she attributes this bitterness to the Lord's doing, but I don't see this as an angry rant against God, blaming Him for all her troubles. No, I think this is a recognition on Naomi's part of how the Lord works in the lives of His people when we disobey Him. He puts us in situations that will break us to get us to see that we really need Him More than anything else, we need Him. A recognition of a God who disciplines His people when they go astray for the purpose of bringing them back, for the purpose of restoration. A warning that even though sin may look reasonable and good many times, it brings negative consequences into your life and with your relationship with God. I think this is what the answer to that catechism question says, I think this is an expression of grief over sin and a hatred of her sin. This is true repentance because I think her final statement at the end of verse 21 expresses the true nature of sin. I like the ESV translation of verse 21. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The Lord has testified against me. Some translations will read, the Lord has afflicted me, instead of the Lord has testified against me. Now, this is not the place, nor do I have time in the sermon, to justify uh, the translation of the ESV. I do think that's the best translation, but you know, sometimes there are textual variants that you have to work through. But I will just say at this point that the ESV, the, new, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Version all express this idea that the Lord has testified against me. The Lord has witnessed, been a witness against me. Now, so, so why is this important? It's legal language. It's courtroom language. It shows that Naomi here recognizes the true nature of her move to Moab. It was sin. It was wrong. But even more than that, it's covenant language because God is acting as a witness against the actions of Naomi and her family. A witness leaving the inheritance that God had given to them and leaving the land where God's special presence dwelt but as a witness to call them back to himself. One aspect of sin is to neglect your relationship with God. 
to leave behind your pursuit of God in pursuit of other things. And sometimes those other things may not even be bad things. They can be good things. But if they take the place of God in your life, they are idols. As Naomi has returned to God, she has confessed her sin and demonstrated the true nature of her repentance. She testifies to those women that disobedience has consequences. Don't leave your spiritual home. Don't walk away from the place of God's blessings. Don't make God pursue you. It's not easy to return. The pain does not disappear quickly. But Naomi is moving back to where she belongs. She's moving back toward God. And repentance is worth it because even in the difficult nature of repentance and turning back to God, there's hope of God's provision. I think it's important to see that when God works to bring us back to Him, He will supply everything that you need. I mean, many times to turn around, to change directions, to to begin to head in a different way, a better way toward God, it seems impossible. It seems like there are so many obstacles in the way. But what we learn from this passage, I think, is that God will supply everything that we need to turn back to Him. He provides a companion in Ruth. We didn't read about that part. It becomes clear uh, in that middle part that, that Ruth is not just making a commitment to Naomi. She makes a commitment to, the, to Yahweh, the God of Israel, make, taking an oath in his name that she'll never leave Naomi. God provides a companion who it says in chapter 4 will turn out to be better than seven sons. You can't get any better than that in that culture. Ruth, better than seven sons, who will be instrumental in restoring a family to Naomi. This is just the beginning of, of the restoration. The whole book of Ruth is how God fills that emptiness that Naomi has because he's brought her back to him. She's repented and come back to his land. Naomi cannot see all of these implications in her present circumstances, but God is at work to restore her. Even the last phrase of this chapter says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Naomi has many needs, and one of them is to eat. And we see how God is going to supply that need in chapter 2, the beginning of barley harvest. Ruth will go out and uh, glean in the fields to bring back food. And you see how God marvelously provides for that in chapter 2. There's hope. There's hope for the future. And that hope is greater than anything Naomi could have ever imagined. It's not going to be easy, but God is going to work. And provide everything that she needs. There may be times when we drift away from the Lord. There may be times when we blow it. Years wasted, maybe? You may wonder if it's worth the effort to start moving in the right direction. Be assured that even though the way looks difficult, God will supply each step of the way. 
whether it's a Ruth, whether it's a prospect of barley harvest, arise and return. God can work to restore what's been taken away. He can work in the difficult situations to bless His people. In fact, He can work in ways that you can't even imagine. Who would have thought that the dead line of Naomi, her husband's dead, it's a dead line. Who would have thought that God would work to raise up that dead line? That's a part of what the book of Ruth is about. You read read chapters 3 and 4, that that son who will be born to the union of, of Ruth and Boaz will carry on the name of Elimelech and receive his inheritance. Who would have thought that God could have raised a dead line, this dead line of Naomi, and that becomes a part of the line of David? Genealogy at the end of the book. And that becomes a part of the line of Christ. It's amazing. And who would have thought that a God who pursues his people would pursue them enough to take upon himself human nature and to come into this cold, dark world to save us from our sins. That shows you how much God loves his people. Who would have thought? Return. Repent. There is hope of a better future. There's a man named Norm. Faced a major decision in his life. He could take the stairway door to the rooftop of his New York City apartment building and slip down a fire escape and possibly find freedom. Or he could walk through the front door of that building where the authorities were waiting to arrest him for murder. Norm was tired of running. He's tired of hustling. He later said, I had nothing to show for the first 37 years of my life. Nothing. He took a deep breath. Stepped outside into the waiting arms of the police. He told them, I'm glad you caught me. I am so, so tired of running. When he stopped running, his life really began to change, including his spiritual life. Um, he, He did become a Christian. At each step, God provided what Norm needed. He will do the same for you. He will do the same for your family. Are you tired of running? Turn, return, repent. Stop running from God and come home. You will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God who pursues your people to bring us back to you. We see that throughout the pages of the Old Testament. We see that in the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross for our sins. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Give us that faith. Give us that trust. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to turn back to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.